Good afternoon and welcome to Future State Envisioning 2021 and Beyond, a health system CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by Proofpoint. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Health System CIO, and I will be your moderator today. We're looking forward to some audience participation. You can send in your questions or comments at any time. Put those in the Q&A box. We'll take them later in the program, and we're going to do a poll later, so we look forward to you participating in that. Nice way to see the screen today. Click on the top center, get it in side-by-side mode. Adjust the divider to get everything the size you want it, and it should say speaker view in the top right-hand corner. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, we're going to go about 40 minutes with our main panel discussion, discussion featuring Tony Ambrosi, SVP and Chief Digital Officer with Baptist Health South Florida, Saad Chaudhry, CIO with Luminous Health, Aaron Meary, CIO at Dell Medical School and UT Health in Austin, and Ryan Witt, Managing Director of Healthcare with Proofpoint. So we've got quite the collection of folks for you today. Uh, let's jump right in. I want to make good use of our time. Can you give us an overview of your organization and role? Tony, can you get us started? Sure, absolutely. So I'm uh, Tony Ambrosi. I'm the Chief Digital and Information Officer at the Baptist uh, Health South Florida. Now, in full disclosure, I just started some short three months ago, and this is also my first uh, absolute foray into in healthcare. So, in previous uh, previously, I was with, uh, with the Walt Disney Company as a senior vice president for uh, technology and digital. Um, I would say that the title kind of uh, describes well um, the role and the organization at this point. Um, there is, on one hand, there's a dual focus or, or there's a focus on digital, digital transformation, and that's along four dimensions. That is consumers, patients, clinical staff, and operations. Also, in parallel, the second dimension uh, with building and rebuilding the technology and data foundations and capabilities in order to deliver the digital transformation. Now, um, I, I get this question a lot, so I'm going to preemptively ask answer <laughs> what attracted me to healthcare and what attracted me to Baptist. So healthcare, um, I believe there is uh, an enormous and probably unique uh, once in a generation opportunity for transformation in healthcare. And I'm sure we're going to talk a little bit more about that. Now, what attracted me to the Baptist, um, as first and foremost, is a very powerful vision in terms of digital and data. Um, the CEO, Baptist CEO, Brian Keeley, talks about Baptist wanting to be the Amazon of healthcare in South Florida. And then together with uh, a very strong support and conviction and drive at all levels uh, for this digital transformation. So both of those are very attractive. Excellent. Very good. Saad? Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Saad Chaudhry. I am the Chief Information Officer for Luminous Health. Uh, as an organization, Luminous Health in itself is relatively new, and I am yet newer at the organization. I've only been here for about a month. The organization has only been around for uh, under a year. Um, it was launched after two local regional uh, medical centers and health systems combined together to form this small to medium-sized enterprise. It's comprised of three inpatient uh, facilities, uh, campuses, what have you, 
uh, totaling about 650 beds, and then a uh, ambulatory network of about 60 or so facilities, and then some other enterprises such as imaging and, and labs and so on and so forth. Uh, we are located in uh, Maryland, uh, around the Annapolis, going a little bit west, uh, uh, central Maryland area. Um, and the organization has a great legacy in the, uh, in the smaller parts that came together to form it. I'm very excited to be here today. I'm, uh, I'm, in, I'm honored to be a part of this company. I'm, I don't believe that my stories are, are going to be as fantastic as, as Tony's from Walt Disney or, <laughs> or, or encompassing things that uh, Aaron may have dealt with, but I will try my absolute best. Thank you for having me. Well, we're happy to have you. Aaron? Saad, welcome. Uh, I'll give you a warning though. Once you get to like month 12 of your stint, your hair will start to go away or turn gray. I mean, there are certain criteria being a healthcare uh, CIO that you just sort of accept. So welcome, welcome to the crew, my friend. Glad to have you on here. And Tony, uh, welcome to you as well. Thank but you. I mean, you're, you were trained with the best at Walt Disney. You know, we look to them and, and the Ritz and others as icons in the healthcare industry as to what to become, hopefully. So I'm excited by what you're going to do down there. And, you know, I will, I will say a shout out, you know, you have some phenomenal hospital presidents, folks like uh, Michael Mayo, who I worked with in the past, who are just brilliant operators. I have no doubt that you will just excel in your role. So, so welcome. Thank you. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So I'm Aaron Miriam, the CIO here at the University of Texas at Austin. I've been here about two and a half years. Uh, UT Austin is one of the largest academic uh, research institutions in the world. Uh, we often uh, have a lot of Nobel Prize winners that are here on faculty. We do world rundown research. Uh, we were part of the development of the process with the spike protein uh, that, that Pfizer and Moderna both use uh, now in their vaccines. Uh, we were also, you know, do things like, you know, we were the ones that visualized the black hole. When you saw those images about a year ago, that came from our uh, advanced computing center. Uh, in addition to that, uh, we have a phenomenal healthcare division, multiple hospitals, multiple ambulatory clinics. Uh, we have a world-class uh, medical school. Um, and we also have, of course, the Longhorns football team, which everybody here in Texas, near and dear to their heart. Uh, my span of controls over all of that. Um, and so I have oversight over the medical school, over our clinical enterprise, over our research divisions, and also what we call community impact, uh, which is all of our social workers, meal, folks work with Meals on Wheels, all of those sorts of things, uh, looking really hard at social determinants of health and really making sure there's equi equitable care across the entire continuum of care for Central Texas. Um, what I'm excited to talk to you today about over the past two and a half years is some of the digital transformation that we have undergone and what we're focusing on going forward, which I'm sure will tie a lot to what you're going to hear from Tony inside uh, about what we're doing with the market, what the market's asking us to do. Austin is a very fast growing city, uh, a lot of fortune uh, tech companies moving here with Tesla and others, Apple building a second headquarters just north of us. Dell, of course, anchored heavily and a phenomenal job in the community. Things that we're doing with them as well as we expand and UT Austin is poised the precipice to take advantage of that. So a lot of our IT strategy has been influenced by tech, which then influences the delivery of care and of course, world-class research. So happy to talk through it today and look forward to it. Excellent, looking forward to it. Ryan? Welcome, uh, thank you for having me. I'm excited, uh, very excited to be here and talk about uh, all these wonderful topics that, we've, that we have discussed. Particularly, uh, and I should go talk about my role first. So my name is Ryan Witt. I run the healthcare industry practice at Proofpoint. Proofpoint made a deliberate investment 
in a small number of core industries, healthcare being the first one, and I lead that charge. I also uh, run the company's uh, healthcare customer advisory board. It's the only industry-focused advisory board that we have, and we've been going now for three years and trying to understand use cases and challenges for healthcare, uh, making sure that we are enhancing the experience for the industry and solving for those, those sort of problems. With regards to Proofpoint, Proofpoint is a, is a cybersecurity company that's totally focused on the main threat vector these days. And so if you look at how cyber criminals launch their attacks, they're almost always these days launched against people, uh, usually on email, but there are other channels as well. That's how they're um, launching their attacks. We are wholly focused on protecting that threat vector, how people work, how they communicate, how they operate, and providing a whole range of controls to protect the bad guys from, or protect the good guys from the bad guys getting in. Um, that, that's who we are. With regards to today's conversation, uh, I'm also really excited about the digital transformation that's happening in healthcare. I think we're at a unique opportunity in the marketplace that, of course, that transformation's occurred in many other industries. Um, from a proof point standpoint, or from my standpoint, I'm really interested in the enabling capability, the importance of cybersecurity as a means to, to allow this digital transformation to occur. Because if you don't have a robust security background and means to protect these online or future sort of engagements, I just don't know how you establish and maintain the very important doctor-patient relationship, which has been the bedrock of how care has been provided. So I'm interested in how, how cybersecurity plays a role there. And then more broadly, how cybersecurity plays a role in, in protecting patients. I mean, we've seen too many examples lately where cyber attacks have essentially taken down health institutions to the point where they can no longer provide patient care, at least in the way that they would expect to provide that care. Definitely uh, all wrapped with security, everything we're going to talk about today. Um, so very good. All right, Saad, let's start with you. What's your biggest takeaway from what you experienced in 2020? And what did dealing with the COVID crisis teach you? Well, I, I think I speak for many out there when I say that the one of the biggest takeaways is that right when you think the year couldn't get any worse, <laughs> something else comes along. Uh, 2020 has absolutely been uh, one for the books. And then what I realized very quickly was that um, many industries, not just healthcare, uh, we pay lip service to a lot of contingency planning. Um, and, and we don't always uh, sort of realize the depth of our own technical debt until something happens. And this is human nature. This is, this is just the way we are. This happens in our own personal lives as well, in our homes until something absolutely breaks, we're not looking for maintaining different things around our own homes as well, at least in mine. Uh, so I was, before this rule, I was in the Middle East for a little while. I was with a uh, Gartner, which is of course a technology advisory firm. And before that I was of course in healthcare as well as a CIO. And so I was able to see the year 2020 from multiple angles. Uh, in healthcare specifically in two geographies, but then outside of healthcare with other industries as well. And, and what I realized was that there were some basic things. Uh, for example, the, uh, the, the framework to work remotely while having access to every resource you need from a corporate standpoint within healthcare organizations. 
What I realized very quickly was, I don't know why, I don't know at what point in time, but healthcare organizations were a little lagging in just that basic corporate function itself. Uh, um, and then the other thing I realized was that geographically, uh, United States, yet again, was, was a little bit behind in terms of remote work for your own employees and your staff. Uh, and I think that's also part of the fact that we're a large country, we are a little isolated on each side, so it takes a while to travel outside of national borders. So there's not a lot of impetus to say that we may be able to do things remotely, whereas in the Middle East, in Europe, the national boundaries are very short. They're small. You cross them often. There is a large inclination to say we can do this remotely, and there always has been. And then going into the healthcare side where the rubber meets the road at the, uh, at the hospital, that also carried over. So if you have smaller geographies and, and you have renowned uh, centers of care, chances are you are catering to people remotely a lot more. Uh, you're doing a lot of the pre-work of showing up at the hospital remotely, whether it's over the phone with concierge, whether it's through telehealth and video visits, or whether it's just filling out questionnaires basically online. So you're already doing that in, in geographies where the countries are closer together. In the United States, this is nothing new either, but this wasn't a lot of, uh, there wasn't a lot of thought in, in, in how this would work if this was to be the switch 100% all of a sudden due to a pandemic. So from my perspective, that was a big takeaway that we got to, these things exist. It didn't require a lot of innovation, no invention whatsoever, but, and we had been paying lip service to it, including myself, but we didn't actually act, we didn't have the ability to activate them from soup to nuts when the time came. And I, I was right. going very to, good. Sorry, I was going Go ahead, to stick on the point that Sad made, uh, made at the beginning about technical debt. So when everything is normal and stable, uh, there is that tendency to delay uh, fixing technical debt from one year to another, and sometimes it's five years later. And then some crisis hits. Of course, the, the pandemic is once in a century. But the other smaller um, um, crisis that can, can can happen, whether it's a natural disaster or what have you, or a shift in the market, uh, as retail has been seeing for a while. And so it's very important to invest in that technology, eliminate as much as possible the technical debt, keep things current, but also keep systems integrated. We, and I think when I say we is collective, we, <clears throat> I don't think, <clears throat> excuse me, we could have done what we've done this year uh, uh, without having those elements in place and having invested years ago. So, because you, you know how it is, it's how they say it. Um, if you want a uh, tree shade today, the best time to, to see that the, that tree is 20 years ago. So you would have had to invest uh, on a consistent basis. Very good point, Aaron. Yeah, so I, I echo exactly what Tony and Saad were saying. I, I would say the biggest takeaway in this year, looking at it retrospectively, is agility. And, and I would sum it up as the ability to deal with the unknown uh, uh, obstacles that are coming your way that Saad alluded to, and also being able to figure out, okay, I didn't invest 20 years ago in a seedling that's now a tree, but maybe I could make do with X, Y, and Z instead and make it work. And so that ingenuity and the ability to be agile on your feet became critical. What I'm thankful for is 
you know, UT Austin had afforded me at least a year and a half of time before COVID-19 broke out. Uh, so I was able to have things in place that didn't exist when I first got here. Like we established a DevOps team. So I was able to be able to build solutions quickly in either uh, any major cloud service provider. I was able to do things on our digital front uh, beyond just website design and, and engagement, but really app development, which paid dividends when it came to contact tracing and home monitoring. I was able to make partnerships with a lot of the startups versus the traditional big giants uh, because we were invested in that. You know, UT Austin believes in looking at the entire ecosystem and doing what's best for uh, the city of Austin. And so to the degree of it, I was able to make quick partnerships on the fly, depending what those obstacles were as related to COVID-19. And I would also say that our investment and our staff was key in making sure that we had the communication vehicles available to make sure people were kept in the know in the early days the news was flooded with horrific images out of New York and Boston and, and just sad situation of what was going on. And it did have a morale effect, but being able to communicate and, and innovate and more focus on the positives, we're going to get through this, we're going to round the corner, things that we can do, allowed me the ability to be agile. I'll give you a specific example. And, and Anthony, I think I've talked to you about this before. You know, we were running low on PPE at one point, and I said, forget it, I'm going to 3D print my own. And we 3D printed our own N95 a filtered mask to outfit our clinicians so they weren't stuck wearing a bandana if we had run out of official N95 masks. You know, that doesn't just happen. That takes a team. It takes ingenuity. It takes the ability to take chances. It takes a team willing to go to the edge and go, can we even do this? Now I have a much better appreciation for the design mechanisms and mechanics of an N95 mask, I'll tell you that. But to the degree of it, it's not, man, what am I going to do because I don't have a seed in the groove to a tree? but rather what can we do? What tools do we have at our fingertips? What, what can we imagine to create and move the ball forward and focus on that? Because as science is beating the, the virus and now we have a vaccine in hand, we had to be able to keep the morale pushing forward because the organization couldn't stop. We, weren't, we didn't have the ability to simply say, stop taking care of folks, I'll go home. We had to be here. We're on the front lines. IT had to be the enabling entity to do that. Otherwise, this whole thing comes to a grounding halt. So for me, it's agility, it's imagination, it's perseverance, and it's belief that tomorrow will be brighter, will be better, and everybody buys into that. Very good. Very good. I'm going to follow up on some of that stuff in a minute, but Ryan, I'd like to get your thoughts. Yeah, I'd echo everything that was said. I'll, I'll answer the question from a cybersecurity sort of perspective. I think the big takeaway for me is the sophisticated nature of the attacks and how they've evolved. If we talked about this sort of discussion four years ago and we had a cyber angle to it, there'd be a lot of focus around network-based attacks. How do networks get exploited because of lack of patches being deployed, et cetera, zero days. Today, 2020 has been all around social engineering as a means to launch attacks. And the same level of dedication and sophistication and patience that led to a cyber criminal finding a zero day exploit has also been now been deployed to harvesting data from Facebook and LinkedIn and other social media sites to go launch their attacks. And if you look at, as Proofpoint does, we track research in this area very closely because we believe understanding where attacks are occurring is a great way to figure out where to roll out your adaptive controls. Very clear analysis and, and trend lines of in the early stages of the pandemic, going back in the January, January March sort of timeline, all the lures that we were seeing around 
you know, imposter style emails purporting to come from WHO or CDC, and it's all FAQ style uh, lures, uh, come here for more information. Then it was, uh, to Aaron's point, in, in March, it was all around, the lures were all around, hey, we, un we found this treasure trove of PPE and other medical equipment, that was the lure. You know, approve this invoice. We'll send it to you. Uh, as the as the pandemic uh, evolved, it became around tax stimulus. You know, care care the care act. It became around you know mimicking patient portals, attacking people how they work at home. So as as the and to the point now where of course where the attack lines are all around trying to uh, look at the supply chain of how the virus is being deployed, like physically being deployed. So attacking that supply chain and and the, the deep cold storage of how that how Pfizer and others need to go deliver that. Uh, so I think that what that tells you is I do not underestimate how sophisticated these actors are, the length they will go to to understand uh, how to launch an exploit against you, how they will research your organization, you as an individual, they will make claim or mail make assertions about your hierarchy and, and your level of authority, and they will launch very compelling lures accordingly, leveraging all this incredible amount of data, which unfortunately is out there in the, in the, in the public. So I think that's my big takeaway, though, just the level of social engineering that we see. Perfect. Thank you, Ryan. Uh, I want to follow up on this uh, concept that was sort of described to me in the answers previously about being prepared uh, for a crisis. Um, there's the concept of technical debt, which is interesting, that was mentioned by Saad and followed up, up, up on by Tony. And I want to talk a little, it seems like there's, there's two sides to this. One is preparation. And I would describe that as not developing too large a technical debt or, or doing some of the things that need to be done, making sure your house is in order because, hey, we don't know when a storm's coming. So let's make sure we have to do these things. And then, so you have that, if you do that properly, you're in decent shape. And then we go to Aaron's point, which is the ingenuity, the MacGyver aspect of it, the innovation, right? So, but you have to do both. You can't just, you can't just do the, the innovation if you haven't put in the plumbing. Um, and if, Amen. so, is is that what I, is, am I getting this right? This sort of two sided thing. I like to start with Saad. Sure. Uh, yeah, I think you are getting it right. And, and and furthermore, just to expand on that idea of technical debt, if 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 you take the analogy of actual debt, like financial debt, um, you will understand that no matter who you are, where you are in the world, chances are you have to live with a certain amount of debt right throughout your life, because that's how you progress. That's how you take care of things. That's how you get things in and out of your life. Technical debt, in my belief, is no different. So I don't believe any CIO will be able to 100% eliminate all technical debt from their landscape. So there is a healthy amount of technical debt that you sort of live with because it almost like a siphon moves you forward. Um, but the technical debt buildup uh, is is what gets you if, if you sort of let it get out of control and it builds up just like financial debt would. Your, your point about balancing the two, the forward-leaning sort of uh, inventiveness, innovation side, and covering up uh, and then remediating all your technical debt, the plumbing piece, the things mm -hmm. that you build stuff on top of, uh, right. that has, that's, that's a tightrope walk. 
because there's going to be limited resources and there's always going to be focal points for what you must campaign for and against as a CIO in any given year. Um, and so that's going to be a tightrope walk because you're going to have to figure out which debt you can carry for that year, for that fiscal year, for half a year, whatever it may be for you. And where can you sort of put those resources into the innovation side, the forward leaning side? And, and you know, places that like, uh, like and CIOs like Aaron, I think that is a very good example of it because he was able to do that balance. And that balance for him was right in time. Because when COVID struck, he was able to utilize that balance to lean forward. He was able to print his own, you know, N95 mask, which is an awesome story, by the way, Aaron. And I'm sure Tony has some stories of his own of how he he walked that tightrope. Yeah, he built Tony. He built Walt Disney World. That wins. Sorry, that wins. No, nothing. But I totally agree. You have to have both. Uh, You have to have that foundation that is relatively more modern. The other thing I would say, in order to be able to innovate, you can't innovate on all things that don't work very well, they're not integrated. It just this doesn't work. And you know, it would be a, just a thin layer uh, that goes away soon. Um, but it's also um, having a strategy, let's say around digital, around data and pursuing it. Um, having pursued it in advance, you can't, even on normal systems, okay, you have a, a great EMR and EHR, whatever. But if you don't have uh, uh, digital capability started, it's relatively very hard to start that uh, cold. Um, So therefore, having a digital strategy um, is very important um, in in these situations. I think that's that's in my past experience, definitely that that helped immensely because then indeed we can innovate on top, not on just on top of the, the foundations, but also on that on that digital and, and turn around very quickly. Uh, clearly the model, maybe the business model changes overnight, but you can do that because you are agile because you invested in the in that agility, you invested in the cloud, you invested in um, all the development techniques and, and, um, and in data. Aaron, it's probably a bad analogy, but it's like you need a, you need a decent canvas before you can paint, right? Exactly so right. That's uh, how we think of the... Yeah, I would say you're right, Anthony, but let me let me change your vernacular a little bit here. Instead of technical debt, I want to call it opportunity, because with every bit of opportunity, you can take it one way or the other. Example, man, I'm running out of storage. You know, I got to increase uh, on-site, you know, uh, uh, disc spinning disks, you know, and what am I going to do? Oh, wait, now there's cloud. Maybe you weren't a cloud organization. You can now look at it right now versus buying additional disks, spinning disks, just as a, just as a, just a simple example. There's opportunity no matter what. So yes, you're going to have legacy issues you have to overcome, but can you like for like dollars be able to maybe pivot forward the organization so that there isn't this exponential spend on top of fixing what the opportunity that remains. Number two thing, we haven't talked enough about communication. Healthcare is told in stories. If you do not understand your customers, internal and external, and you cannot articulate to your board and to your CEO and to your C-suite and your partners why XYZ technology stack, whatever it may be, opportunity, debt opportunity, or futuristic capability, and how that's going to enable and unlock that agility I spoke towards earlier, you're good as dead. Number three thing, does your organization know who you are? Do you get out of your office and go get into a bunny suit and stand in an OR? Do you do rounds uh, during shift change? Do you sit there and the medical staff knows to call you when they have a question? And are you the person that they call when they say, hey, I'm thinking about X, Y, and Z versus, oh man, I broke this thing. 
that's opportunity. So yes, it is a canvas, Anthony, that you've got to have, but it's one that's not just simply a canvas. It's, I believe in what I'm going to draw and what I'm going to paint. The organization believes in what I'm going to draw and what I'm going to paint. And by God, we're going to make it happen. That is the encompassing thing of it. So yes, there's debt. Yes, it's a tightrope. I totally agree with what Tony and Sad are saying, but it's a mentality shift and a communication layer that goes on top of this to execute where it matters. Well, I love that, but I still don't have a problem with the word technical debt. I actually yeah, kind of thought that was catchy. Yeah. <laughs> you say technical debt to a CFO, they're going to throw you out of their office. If you tell them it's opportunity to increase the <laughs> area, then they absolutely will listen to you. So just FYI. <laughs> Great I got point. it. Yes. Okay. Anthony, I want to chime right. in about that. If that's okay. Yeah, please. Yeah, I, I think it's at an interesting point in time where the linkage between innovation, digital innovation, and um, cybersecurity is totally connected to a hospital's mission, you know, patient safety, patient care, and a doctor's adherence to the Hippocratic Oath. You need this technology now to go make sure you're delivering what you basically set out as a, at, a, at a mission level to go, to go achieve. And if these investments are not made, unfortunately, we're going to see some institutions lag behind their capability to just adhere to their basic overall mission. So I think like never before we can make that, 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 that linkage with the investment in technology. And so whether you want to call it a debt or an opportunity or anything else, but I think we have to, we have to demonstrate and show how that, how that investment will actually help the institution meet its stated goals and how it help doctors uh, live up to their oath. I mean, if you look at the, the totality of the wellness of the patient, how do you ignore their their data as a means of one of the things you need to, you need to safeguard? You need to safeguard their overall wellness and their overall health. Yeah, I would I would argue that would include their their data as well. Well, I agree with you. Let's go let's go into that a little bit, Aaron. Aaron, let me let me run it by you. You know, we talked about all this cool stuff, right? I mean, someone in your position, the typical CIO. Um, of an organization that has a CISO, because let's assume the organizations we're talking to have a CISO, how much are you sort of day-to-day involved in that? Or how much is it, my CISO's got that? Like I make sure we communicate and I make sure everything goes through that person and they got that versus how much are you thinking about security a lot? Well, given that I also at one point was a was the CIO for a large healthcare cybersecurity vendor out of Boston for a number of years. And we're oh, that's right. That's Remember, right. kind of yes. love my DNA. But uh, from a perspective of the CIO, generally speaking, security is top of mind all the time. And it is exactly to what Ryan was talking about with the increased threat vectors. Now, the day doesn't go on that I don't try to get, I don't, people aren't trying to fish me or I'm getting some sort of LinkedIn messages or whatever else. You know, I kind of put myself out there on a social platform because I believe in our community and what we're doing technology wise, but it also opens me up to a lot of personal people trying to solicit me, a lot of foreign nation attacks, things like that. I'll give you a specific example. When we, uh, early days of COVID-19, we stood up uh, what was basically a COVID-19 PPE exchange, right? So we set up a quick forum online to allow organizations in Austin to coalesce where, who has masks, who has gloves, who has gowns, who has face shields. The first thing that happened when that thing went live, I was attacked by every foreign state out there. Luckily, we had our defenses in line. We have a defense in depth strategy and stack around that. Just a simple forum. There was no EPHI. It was just a, hey, who has PPE and how can we get it centralized and get it distributed to hospitals? 
It was all for the right reasons and immediately were attacked. I mean, it didn't even take like 10 minutes. So mm-hmm. to the degree of it, uh, I, I would absolutely say that everything we're doing, everything the industry is doing is being watched. As referenced recently, uh, the week of the election week, when the FBI and uh, CISA had a, gi- a giant announcement about potential ransomware attacks, which unfortunately took out University of Vermont and others, this thing is happening, it's continuing, and it's going to get further along. As also as public news, the University of Texas system has been warned numerous times by the FBI about foreign governments trying to infiltrate on a research side and steal uh, intellectual property. So no matter what I do, no matter what it is I'm thinking about, if cyber is not top of mind, I'm as good as dead. And it goes along with everything I said about earlier, uh, that you have to be known and have to be understood because you can't be, hey, a physician, nurse, whomever, I'm putting you in a little box. The world can't see you. You can't see it to protect you. That's not going to work. You have to explain and work with them, work with the workflow and understand where things are going, where the business is going, and make sure that security is built in. It's not that it's invisible. It's not that it's a barrier and incumbent but it's there as an enabler and sell that idea of an enabler. And that's where communication comes in the key. key. Excellent. Tony. Um, Yeah, no, absolutely. I think I'm, I'm going to clearly um, say Condla was, uh, was said uh, earlier, uh, frankly. So, okay. Anything else on that, Tony? Um, I, you know, I think it's, uh, uh, just, just as it was said, I think you know uh, clearly those are the elements that, um, frankly, are are the ones. Very good, Saad. Uh, yeah, I I think uh, Aaron put it very very well when he said that there's just, there can't be a day as a CIO in the healthcare world that goes by where you should not be thinking about cybersecurity. So having a CISO doesn't offload that. That just means you have a partner that you can actually. Uh, sort of strategize and work with. Um, Furthermore, this is something that's at a board level now. So, you know, I I think Gartner, their last survey from 2019 of 500 boards around the world, uh, 67% of the board said that one of their top three issues is cybersecurity on their, on their, on their docket. So this is a high level thing now. It's got a visibility. It's not just a technical thing anymore. And what Ryan said before is absolutely true because one of the most frequently attacked links and probably some would say the weakest link in the chain of cybersecurity is the human element. So that social sort of hacking is is, is what you're most afraid of in, in, in our world. And, and the only way to combat that a lot of times is education, is proliferation of best practices. Uh, you know, everything from anti-phishing campaigns uh, to, uh, to everything from, uh, you know, how do you actually engage with your own folks, your own staff to make them understand that whenever you're communicating, you'll communicate it in such a way. And if they get somebody else reaching out to them saying that I belong to the organization, it's not going to be you. So those kind of things, the social engineering piece are now more important than they ever were. Uh, and then last, lastly, um, I don't believe this is going to get any easier for any of us. Uh, We've always said that, you know, the bad elements are going to stay one step ahead because they're always researching ways of attacking. And, and, and uh, Aaron's forum example was, is a prime example of that. You know, a few minutes, this thing is open. It doesn't contain probably anything valuable that they would, but he's getting targeted by city states. And, and, and you know, uh, so there is something to be said about that. 
there is an underlying environment that we're all living in that is constantly attacking you and it's not going to get any easier. So you have to think about it constantly. And I believe that every healthcare CIO is. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I want to add one more thing. I think it's important for this, this group to know and for the world to know is that the House of Representatives recently passed a bill that's actually expected to pass the Senate where organizations are going to be recognized for good cybersecurity practice and hygiene. This has been something that's been floated with HHS for quite some time, and that the Office of Civil Rights is being asked to give leniency or guidance or lessen penalties because you're doing the right thing, whether you're following a framework, whether you're doing risk assessments, whatever else. So beyond the fact that it's a mandate from a HIPAA perspective, beyond the fact that meaningful use asks us to do risk assessments, beyond the fact that we now know that the penalties are getting up there in the multi-million dollars if you have a breach, now you're going to have even further incentive to adopt good cybersecurity best practice. You know, I'm a co-chair of the HITAC, congressionally appointed member to it. And it's one of the things we've talked about extensively, which is that it's, uh, privacy and cyber go hand in hand. So beyond even now it's top of mind, Anthony, it's going to become even more so in the public eye about good cybersecurity hygiene. Yeah, and I, I would add, uh, you know, actually, um, to the original question about the role of the CIO versus CISO, Clearly, um, CISO, uh, a great uh, role uh, driving things around security, but at the end of the day, uh, CISO doesn't develop the code. CISO none doesn't necessarily um, uh, runs the infrastructure and so on and so forth. So therefore, the CIO being not just supportive of their CISO, but super involved as a credo is very important, very important, including going to the board and getting the, the famous uh, funding um, and then driving all those infrastructure teams to do the right things in the right timeframes and the development teams and so on and so forth. So, um, you know, as a CIO, I think uh, probably security is one, one of those areas where the CIO has to be biased more so um, than the other, the other elements. Also, all right, Tony, let's, Let's stick with you, Tony. What are your top, the top three IT trends you're watching in 2021 and your organization's top three priorities? They might, might not be the same thing, right? So uh, your thoughts there? Probably not. So um, what I would say, you know, with my three months in healthcare, I would say the following. <clears throat> um, I'm, I'm seeing, you know, major technology vendors, you know, the three cloud providers, major cloud providers, Apple, Salesforce, ServiceNow, um, increasingly uh, in getting involved into in healthcare and healthcare systems uh, more so. Uh, even sometimes as the periphery, kind of the, they try to avoid that the regulatory uh, uh, burden, so to speak. But that in, in itself is, is, is great news. Um, probably number two would be um, startups and, and other similar vendors and smaller vendors um, uh, providing innovative capabilities as they have been for a while, but this time a little bit more integrated um, and more broad in scope and with uh, somewhat less assembly at home required. Um, there's a tremendous amount of innovation, uh, but I think in the past has been very point-based and not necessarily uh, very ecosystem aware. Even when the integration, the the, the rigor integration with the EMR has happened. And then I think number three, um, uh, I would say uh, a lot better working and my more robust IoT um, and at home sensors. Um, obviously this has started as a, before the pandemic, 
it developed during the pandemic. And, but this has long legs because simply because true caring for health um, is something that doesn't just happen uh, when you talk to a doctor or in a hospital. And therefore that those technologies, the core technologies um, are, are, I'm looking to see them getting better. Um, in terms of, I think the second part of the, the question was uh, organization top three priorities. I would definitely see for us uh, the digital front door, the focus on the digital front door. Um, and this is fluid and frictionless interactions for consumers, patients, and the clinical staff. Um, number two, um, I would say around uh, AI and machine learning, um, that is specifically injecting, so to speak, the machine learning optimizations and recommendations back into the operational systems. Um, we talk a lot about the AI and ML. Um, at this day and age, everybody can do uh, some ML on their laptop or on a VM in the cloud, but really the power and the value comes where that cycle is, is closed, which is when the recommendations are integrated back into the transaction system. So this is definitely very important. Um, and then, um, and I think, you know, Ryan would be pleased, certainly uh, security is this a perennial, perennial uh, priority and um, clearly that, that continues to be. Very good. Um, Ryan, your uh, top three trends. You know, I'm going to um, answer the question um, in relation to the question posed by Louis Bonetti on, on the chat uh, function there it, around how social engineering attacks and how sophisticated they are and how do you, how do you mitigate against that. And, and I think one of the things that I wanted to say here, and it also is a building on a point Aaron made a little bit earlier, there is a lot of evidence about who is being attacked. There's a lot of data and a lot of research out there about who, who's being attacked. Great example of that, or the most obvious example of that is researchers. If you have any sort of clinical research component in your institution, for those on the call, like you can absolutely guarantee they're being highly targeted. And not only are they targeted, they're probably gonna be targeted by the people you really least want to be targeting you, i.e. the nation state actors, those who have the most, um, sophisticated sort of exploits to launch against you. And it, it, it's it's very clear to me that most health institutions do not have the ability to roll out, you know, kind of gold standard security controls right across the organization. It's just totally impractical. They don't have the resources, they don't have the budget, they don't have the access to technology. So you have to place what I call your security bets. You have to figure out where you want to roll out your adaptive controls to best safeguard. And I think using research and using insight and intel to go figure out where do you place your security bets. So for example, if you knew your researchers were being, being attacked or anybody who has a social media presence at all are being attacked, what could you put in place to mitigate against that? So there's a whole range of options, everything from you know, enhanced sandboxing to multi-factor to security awareness training. It's a whole range of, of options. But I think using that threat insight to go figure out and drive your, your strategy and drive um, the, the adaptive controls is a great way to understand how attackers are attacking you. And it's, I think it's like, I almost equate it to like, 
for basketball fans out there. I mean, they didn't really take the three-point shot that seriously, I don't know, 15 years ago, 10 years ago. But it became a cornerstone, a cornerstone of how NBA teams now play. Well, now you 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 pivoted the defenses accordingly, and you guard against that sort of play. Pivot your security defenses accordingly, and guard against how cyber criminals are attacking people. Yeah, and I would very I would good. Say con, I would say con that, Tony. Uh, absolutely, because the thing is, you can't you can't defend everything, uh, right? Um, and so you have to prioritize. You have to know what the dangers are and the attacks are and, and really prioritize defending you know the most important assets um, certainly you, you you can't get distracted and so for therefore you always should have a in my opinion should have some sort of list that all those priorities this is the, the you know what are the the vulnerabilities the dangers the the attacks happening very good um Saad, your trends uh, so I think between uh, Tody and, and Ryan, we hit on some of the big ones. Uh, but the one thing that I would say in terms of just general trends that, that I would foresee is, is this instead of Game of Thrones, it's a game of ecosystems. Uh, and we're seeing that play out already. You know, the, the most recent one being, you know, Salesforce getting slack. Uh, so there is this game happening where they're building out ecosystems within the confines of their own brand, of their own organization, of their own company, of their own vendor. Uh, and similarly, it's no different for healthcare organizations. Uh, there's been some rather large named mergers. Uh, and I don't believe that the merging is only happening at that level. Uh, it's, it's happening at, at smaller healthcare organizational level as well. And it may continue into next year. So that's those are some of the trends in terms of the industry at large that I could probably add to other than the ones that Tony and Ryan touched upon, you know, cybersecurity, uh, um, the Internet of Things pay, playing a major role, especially now that we have seen how it can be utilized in the healthcare continuum during COVID. Um, from the three, uh, three priorities from my organization's perspective, uh, you know, as a newly formed organization. So we're sort of going through that process of the uh, what do you do? post-M&A activity. So that includes things like standardization of your own ecosystem internally, includes a heavy load of integration, both organizational and IT, uh, but it also includes other things that have now actually gotten into the limelight in healthcare, granular patient consent, uh, price transparency, uh, you know, adopting some kind of a uh, digital literacy sort of workforce program uh, internally. So make sure that all the tools that you're making available, the data you're making available, the, the analytics are at, can actually be digested by the folks that make some operational decisions inside your own workforce. Uh, and things that were on the cusp before, pre-COVID, things like what's your moving to cloud strategy? Uh, you know, what's that runway look like now? It's almost like the plane's already in the air. <laughs> it's kind of like if you don't have some level of, of cloud footprint, uh, you're probably not operating very well through COVID because that's mm. essentially one of the fall fallback places that we have all gone to through COVID when things got really, really rough. So that's where I am aiming for uh, internally for my organization and my organization's priorities as well. Very good, Aaron. I want to answer it a little bit differently because I agree with everything Tony and Sato said. So let me give you some different perspectives on this. Um, first IT trend that I'm watching is a uh, younger and younger medical staff 
that's entering the workforce that's more geared towards being able to do multi-modal uh, work. So I can use an iPad and talk on a Vocera at the same time. I can go into a room and I expect the lights to come on because they're used to smart sensors in their house. There's, a, there's an understanding that tech is an enabling layer versus the maybe more traditional standards of having to teach somebody, they expect it. They expect to be able to walk up to a screen and it's just touch screen. They expect to have devices in their hands uh, that are agile and they can flip and become a tablet at, at whim and adapt to their mode of operation. No longer is it okay to say, here's a static thing that does X, Y, and Z only and it can't do A, B, or C. That's not gonna cut it anymore. So that's the first trend is watching healthcare adopt that what other industries like like you know uh, the hospitality space has known for years you have to make the hotel room uh, be as tech trendy as your home which is why you go to any hotel in Las Vegas and they're always bang full of tech same thing is happening in the hospital system that's number 1 number 2 the digital savviness of the consumers what we saw with COVID-19 particularly was that it's no longer okay to force your patients to have to only engage with you in one or two modalities and that's it. Example, we do net promoter score sampling on every single discharge uh, from our hospital and our clinics. And we were typically scoring in the 80s, which is great for NPS. The complaints you're getting about parking, uh, traffic, I can't help that. I'm in Austin, Texas, right? I can't fix traffic. I wish I could. Uh, <laughs> but the minute we went to telehealth for all of our visits across our entire ambulatory space and flipped that entire model on its head, our MPS went to the 90s because now suddenly it was on their time. It was in their former fashion. It was on their phone, their laptop, whatever be it. And that's exactly what the consumers are asking for. So it's adaptation of traditional service lines to that uh, mentality and understanding that. And really that's going to pick up speed in, in 2021. The last trend I would say that's important is I'm gonna actually say this uh, with respect to all my colleagues who are very digitally savvy. And so if you are a dinosaur IT leader and you do not understand how the business works and you can't get on a whiteboard and whiteboard out workflow with the chief medical officer or uh, whiteboard out rev cycle and claims uh, flow with your CFO or, or similar, if you don't understand the business and you're simply a keep the lights guy or gal on person, you are going to find yourself looking for another job very soon. You have to keep up the trend. I think 2021 is going to see a cycling of organizations looking to modernize the role of the CIO and look for people who are multi-mode and didactic and can enable the business and talk like the business. Almost like a COO would be able to then just be the IT guy who provides an electronic medical record that costs way too much money and does very little for your dollars. That Those are the three trends I'm looking at and watching closely. And I think 2021 will, will double down on that. As for our organization's top three priorities, number one, we have a, a really fast growing clinical enterprise. We just opened up a new digital uh, ambulatory surgery center, the best one in Austin, as far as I'm concerned, it's end-to-end -end digital. The physicians love it. Uh, we keep growing, keep adding more practices, adding physicians. We're, we announced multiple new buildings that we're building over the next couple of years. Um, so you're going to see that as a focal point of our growing clinical enterprise quickly and making sure that it stays together in a very didactic and very, very much a workable model that, that really takes care of the, uh, the city of Austin the way it should be taken care of. Number two, research. 
making sure that we continue to excel at what we're doing in research in partnership with the NIH and other uh, leading research organizations and making sure that our PIs, our researchers have access to the data, the systems, the technology they need to make things happen. Number three is our medical school. We continue to add more fellowships and more residency programs and really attract some of the world's brightest. We continually pull some of the applicants that were originally gone to the Harvards or the others and now want to come to Austin because of what the city has to offer. So making sure that we continue to afford them the options. And the way we've done that is like distinction tracks, like a like a uh, obviously you're getting your MD, but you're getting also maybe a master's in policy or a master's in business on top of that. These kinds of things we're able to afford them because we're UT Austin really attracts the best. It continues to grow UT Austin going forward. That's what we're working on for the next uh, top goals for next year. All right, great. I want to get another question, and I'm going to call this the lightning round. So I'm going to ask for approximately 30 second answers here. Um, and I'm very interested in uh, in this leadership issue. Uh, how has COVID, in terms of working from home, managing a remote workforce, increased expected speed of deliverables, impacted the way you lead and manage? What I've been thinking about is that uh, I'm, uh, this is no environment, it's never been good for a micromanager, a very controlling manager, a non-trusting manager, uh, but this is the worst environment for that. People are home. If you're not the kind of person that can trust, uh, that can allow people independence, uh, you are never going to be a good leader anyway, but you're really bad today and you're really going to be exposed. Uh, I'd like a 30-second answer from each of you on the keys you think uh, to leading in, in sort of the new environment. Um, Tony, let's start with you. Sure, I'll try to do the 30 seconds. So I think at least <laughs> in technologies, in the larger technologies organizations, we've had uh, distributed teams for quite a while, some, some years now. Now we have distributed team members and that, that the, the dynamics is a little bit different in, in despite the collaboration tools and simply because it's a lot easier for information to miss, occasionally miss individuals they needed, or the those hallway conversations that have been so useful for innovation just don't happen. So I would say from that perspective, you're right. You know, by now as a leader, you shouldn't be micromanaging all those other uh, qualities, leadership qualities, but in addition, leaders need to become, if they're not already, great connectors, connectors of people, connectors of ideas. Um, number two, ensure the information flows uh, to everyone needing it. Um, then three, some in some shape or fashion, create those uh, occasions for the serendipitous in, in inter interactions between people. Um, and then finally, uh, the human level, making sure that the, the employees uh, are in, in good shape. This is a stressing, still very stressing yeah. time. We as leaders must be constantly present and available and flexible and to, to help our people more, more than, than normal. That's a, a great point to understand the stresses people are under. And Aaron, I've heard you talk about that kind of, you're a big empathetic leadership guy. Um, so yeah, your answer. Yeah, so I, everything that Tony said, and I would add on top of that, number one, uh, making sure that you understand the unique circumstances of every single person on your team. You know, I have a quite a large team at UT Austin, 
And I would say that when they were all here on site, I would do as best I could to do rounds through the department, talk to folks, hopefully catch them when I have a chance when I'm doing those rounds. But now I make it a point to reach out individually, let hold open door sessions deliberately, get to know him or her and understand their nuances, their kids, their spouse, what's going on, their stresses, their concerns, and offer reassurance and be that leader exactly to what Tony said. Number two, making sure you take care of yourself. Your team looks up to you. They're watching how you deal with stress. In my case, I started running more and I went on a keto diet. I haven't stopped in the past seven months. So I, I did things to make sure that I was staying healthy and I was staying sane and I was staying wealthy because it translates to the team and the team started doing yeah. that. Number three, making sure your leaders follow the principle, shadow the leader. If they don't trust your teams beneath them and you trust them and they don't trust others, you have the wrong leader. Find somebody that looks and acts and mimics your belief structure and make sure those leaders are in place or replace your leaders. Too often we deal with a bad egg because we don't want to upset the apple cart. No, deal with it because your team will respect that and you will garnish trust of everybody. And those are the those are the managers under you, one level below you who That's are right. managing other people, right? That's right. Anybody That's managing others. That's right. Yep. No bad eggs. Saad? It's a little unfair to go after those wonderful it is. <laughs> answers. It is. Uh, uh, they've, they've covered, I mean, in an amazingly eloquent way, uh, everything that COVID has meant and what has impacted how all of us must lead and manage. The only things I may be able to add is essentially one of the things we realized very, very quickly as an organization was uh, how much more we could do when needed and, and, and when you could cut out some of the fat in, in your day-to-day -day mm -hmm. tasks or the planning piece of it or the getting on schedules and walking over to the office and then, then coming late to meeting and so on and so forth. So that's actually helped. But what hasn't helped is essentially the, uh, the human component as, as Tony and Aaron both touched upon in different ways. Uh, people tend to start feeling a little more disconnected. When you have people that are very extroverted or when you yourself are as a leader, very, very social, you sort of take it for granted that you're able to have conversations. When you walk around, you're able to connect with people. In this environment, you have to be very deliberate. You have to actually reach out. You have to make those components still work. You have to do, you know, morning coffees with Aaron, morning coffees with Tony, where you just sit with a cup of coffee in front of your computer and you just chat about stuff that may or may not be related to work. You have to do these social interactions on purpose where they were just happening naturally in the past. So that has been another thing that has changed in, in how I'm leading and managing. And, and the last thing about the work itself, this kind of builds upon what Aaron said last, you need people that are managing up. So you don't want them managing down, especially in this landscape. You don't want them going down to say, hey, why aren't you doing in this exact way micromanaging? You want them managing to your level because you want to manage above your own level as well. Uh, so if you're in healthcare, you want to understand what the CMO is going through. You want to understand what everybody else, CNO and everybody's going through. And you want your lieutenants to think like you. You want their uh, negative ones to think like them. And this is so important because you cannot function as a leader right now if you're thinking a level below, because that is truly going to be impossible, the micromanaging aspect of it in this environment. Excellent point. Well, Ryan, I'm going to get your thoughts and let you give us the final thought because we're about out of, out of time. We are. And it's really unfair to come now. Come on now. Now it is. Yes. yes. So I will come and say, um, think of it as just the next threat vector. So with all of this remote working, if that becomes a permanent or semi-permanent state, 
just the edge of your network has essentially been extended and the edge of your, your, your threat vector has been extended to the point where you don't really know who's using these, you know, these corporate issued devices. Maybe kids are using it to get onto sessions at school or whatever. You don't know. You don't know the, the robustness of the, of the home networks, of the home firewalls, those sort of things. So just, just recognize that the bad actors are recognize this as well. And you just need to put in more controls in place to protect this threat vector, threat vector because once they're in, um, that's when they wreak havoc and they will always try to exploit the weakest link. And this could be deemed to be a weak link. Excellent. Well, that is about all we had time for today. I used up about every second uh, we had available regarding continuing education. You could use the final slide in this deck. You'll get an email when the archive of this event is ready for viewing. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team and you can go to our site to register for upcoming webinars. With that, I want to thank our tremendous, amazing, wonderful panel, Tony Ambrosi, Saad Chaudhry, Aaron Miri, and Ryan Witt. I want to thank Proofpoint for supporting this event and making it possible. And I want to thank all of you for attending. And with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.